Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us, give us understanding. May your Holy Spirit lead us into all truth that we might understand the words of your Son and glorify you all the days of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Are you ready? For that great atomic power, will you rise and meet your Savior in the end? Will you shout or will you cry when the fire rains from on high? Are you ready for that great atomic power? These words were penned by bluegrass artists Ira and Charlie Leuven, in the early 1950s, it's one of my favorite bluegrass songs or old country songs. And when they wrote it, it was just a, a decade after the U.S. had dropped an atomic bomb on Japan. And just a decade before the Cuban Missile Crisis spread a shadow of fear over the United States. And while the world faced the constant anxiety of nuclear annihilation, many Christians, like the Leuven brothers were concerned for the state of their fellow citizens' souls. It wasn't a matter of if the great atomic power claimed the lives of Americans, but just a matter of when. Make peace with your maker before it is too late. Now, I barely remember the end of the Cold War, and, remembering, uh, and I remember being comforted back in those days even, we can say, we will never see World War III because there is nuclear power and nuclear weapons now. No one, not even Russia, would want to would start that war. But despite the fact that the great atomic power still exists in the world, we tend to laugh at lyrics like the ones I just quoted because they seem so simplistic, don't they? Preparing to meet our maker... It's not really a concern for us these days. Making sure we have plenty of life insurance, that seems wise. We want to put all of our affairs in order before we die. Yes, that that also seems like a good idea. Make amends even with your enemies. It's probably a good idea as well. But fire raining from on high, meeting your Savior in the end, Well, that's tent revival stuff, isn't it? Well, that's not what Jesus thought. This evening, our gospel text is one of many at the end of Matthew's gospel that should send chills up and down all of our spines. As Jesus wraps up his earthly ministry, he has many warnings to issue, especially to those of us who call ourselves Christians. To be honest... I do not really want to preach this sermon, but woe to me if I don't. This evening, we are soberly reminded reminded that despite John 3.16, and despite the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Our parable this evening is a description of the kingdom of heaven which often describes principles or features of the eternal rule of Christ. 
And Jesus likens the kingdom to many things. And tonight he uses a wedding motif with a small cast, 10 virgins and a bridegroom. These terms need to be uh, translated into our context a little bit. Virgins in a wedding context would be likened to young bridesmaids of our day. As you know, premarital sex is a given in our day and age, but that wasn't the case back then. Bridesmaids would have been young, unmarried, and chaste. But just as in our day, they would also have been invited to the wedding in which they're participating. That's the virgins. The bridegroom is simply the groom or the husband who's to be wedded. We understand Jesus' parables allegorically. So we need to understand who each of these cast members represents. The bridegroom, of course, is God, or more specifically, Jesus Christ. St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that all marriages are to reflect Christ's love for his church. Just as a husband is to give his life for his wife, so too does Christ give up his life for his bride, the church. The virgins then have classically been understood to be Christians, those who profess faith in Christ, who have been forgiven of their sins and washed clean. So to be betrothed to God is to be chaste in every way, no matter where we came from. And this is precisely why this parable is so disturbing. And we're told that five of these virgins are wise and five are foolish. In other words, there are wise Christians and there are foolish Christians. And this is demonstrated by their oil supply. The wise bring extra oil, and the foolish do not. Now, there's quite a bit of debate on what the lamps and the oils symbolize. St. Augustine suggested that the oil is charity or, or love. The wise Christian grows in charity and love and has an extra supply of it at all times. I liked the association, or I agree with those who associate the oil with the Holy Spirit. This is a very biblical connection. Since I can't really store up extra Holy Spirit, I kind of go with Augustine on this, give him the benefit of the doubt. But whatever the case, what separates these virgins is their preparation. What separates them is their preparation. In the parable, all ten virgins, both the foolish and the wise, fall asleep. There are various interpretations of what sleep means here. But the consensus seems to be this is a reference to our earthly death, our bodily death. So St. Paul uses this language in our first Thessalonians passage this evening. Those who have died are said to have fallen asleep just as Jesus has died or fell asleep. And likewise, just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will we rise from the dead as well, just as the virgins are awakened by the coming of the bridegroom. So at this point, we need to stop and think about the difference between the virgins. Those who prepared brought extra oil just in case the bridegroom delayed. The foolish virgins 
either did not expect a delay or they saw no need to prepare for one. Now, since we're just reading this little bit of Matthew's gospel, it may be helpful to point out a couple of other nearby parables to this parable. Just before this parable, the end of chapter 24, Jesus told another parable, and he talks about a servant whose master had gone on a long trip. Jesus says this, but if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can kind of see the seriousness with which Jesus is getting toward the end of his ministry. So the first way to be a foolish Christian is to presume upon Jesus's delay. We confess every week that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But we can presume upon his return. We'd only do this if our chief concern was our own earthly gain, right? We'd mistreat others just for our own advantage. We would eat and drink and figure that we have nothing to worry about because it's not likely that Christ is going to return anytime soon. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, hasn't it? That's one way to be a foolish Christian or a foolish virgin is to presume upon the delay of the bridegroom. The other way to be a foolish Christian is to expect his immediate return. We see this in the parable that follows directly after our parable tonight, in the parable of the talents. The servant who received only a single talent figured that there was really nothing for him to do anyway while his master was away, so he buried his talent in the ground. Jesus says this, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful or lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Then he says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents and cast the worthless servant out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you and I face the same temptations. And whether we presume upon the Lord's delay or we we think that he's just about to be here, so we stop doing anything and we neglect what he's entrusted to us. Either way, we go to the wedding unprepared. Way back in chapter 22, Jesus told another wedding parable about a king who held a a wedding for his son, and no one who was invited really wanted to come. They all had better things to do. And so he gets angry, and he sends his servants, go to the byways and the highways, get everyone that you you can find, and invite them to the wedding feast. And everybody attends with joy. But he points out this one guest who's not dressed, He's not ready for the wedding. 
It's almost an insult, isn't it? It's almost like he's thinking, what's the big deal? It's just a wedding. Why should I get all dressed up? Jesus said that the king cast that man out into the outer darkness as well. And the point we need to take very seriously is that preparing for this great wedding is no casual affair. The call to be a Christian is a serious thing. And if we treat it lightly, we become foolish virgins. Now, whether we are still alive when Christ returns or if we fall into the sleep of death and meet our Lord face to face upon our own resurrection, we are called to be wise virgins. That's the point of Jesus' parable. That is, we are to live our lives in preparation for judgment. What is so chilling about this is that we can be so casual in our professed faith that when that day comes, we can hear the Lord say to us, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So friends, beware of casual Christianity. So what is Jesus saying to us tonight? What does it mean to prepare for the great banquet, the great wedding banquet? How do we avoid this casual Christianity? Well, I think there are many ways to answer that question. But I'm reminded of the first sermon recorded in the Gospels that Jesus preached. Matthew 4, verse 17, includes this sermon And I'll preach the whole thing to you right now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. That's the sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it seems that the primary way we prepare to meet our Savior in the end is to live lives of repentance. To do this, we must constantly examine ourselves, our lives, and our hearts We must tirelessly root out sin from our lives. I'm not saying that we become strict legalists. On the contrary, I'm reminded again of John chapter 14, the words of Jesus, when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Being a wise virgin requires love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The oil in our lamps may in fact be love, as St. Augustine said. But that love is only possible when the Holy Spirit is at home in us. Our obedience to Jesus Christ is the result of our love for him. See, our obedience to Jesus Christ is the result of fear. No, it is the result of love for him. It requires us to be transformed by his love, which is communicated in the gospel. That is his self-sacrificing love for us on the cross and in his resurrection and sustained within us by his Holy Spirit who continues to lead us into all truth. And we know what he commands by reading his word. 
by digesting his word, by meditating on his word, knowing his word. And we are reminded of his commands by his spirit. And our loving response produces the oil we bring to the wedding celebration. If we take his love for granted, if we presume upon his kindness and neglect to respond with repentance and with gratitude, well, we have nothing in our lamps on that day. We will be fools. Now, one of the things I love about planting Mission St. James is the opportunity to share our vision with others. We named this church after St. James, the brother of our Lord, who wrote the book of James. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's not producing fruit. James says it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have my works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Friends, this is the difference between the foolish virgins and the wise. To be a foolish virgin or a casual Christian is to rely on a dead faith, a faith that says, I don't have to take things too seriously. I believe in the gospel. gospel. Nothing more is required of me. Why bother with preparations and extra oil? God loves me just the way that I am. James calls this a dead faith. We may be saved by grace through faith alone. That is true, but not a faith, as the reformers would like to say, not a faith that remains alone. We are not saved or justified by our works. I'm not saying that. Salvation is a free gift of God, but a faith that only receives and never gives is the faith of foolish virgins. The face of wise virgins looks like what we see in Jesus' teaching at the final judgment, way at the end of chapter 25. Just a couple passages after our parable tonight, Jesus says that at the final judgment, he will separate the sheep from the goats. That is, he will separate the wise virgins from the foolish. And he'll say, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is, we live lives repenting from serving ourselves because we understand what Christ has done for us by faith. We live our lives for the sake of others, just as Jesus did for us. It isn't enough to believe in God. James said that even the demons believe in God and they shudder. To exemplify the love of Christ out of a loving response to his love for us 
is what it means to be wise virgins. Let me say that again. To exemplify the love of Christ out of a loving response to his love for us is what it means to be wise virgins. But notice how ordinary it looks. Clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting the lonely. See, our mission at, our vision at Mission St. James is to see these ordinary ministries flourish in our midst. Prison ministry, soup kitchens, adoptions, providing community for the lonely, a place for the wanderer to dwell. So that at midnight, when we hear the cry, the bridegroom is here, come out and meet him. We'll all have plenty of oil and process into the wedding feast together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this would be the case for everyone here at Mission St. James. We pray that you would build us into a community that not only says that we believe, but we, we actually live out lives of repentance, no longer serving ourselves, but serving others, and loving response to what you have called us to do, loving response to what you have done for us. And may we be so transformed by the love of your Son the sacrifice that he made for us and the giving of your Holy Spirit that we might, be, uh, we might be wise virgins, that we might have plenty of oil and process to the wedding feast together. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.